If you have your Bibles today, could you turn them in the Second Chronicles chapter 30? So if you picked up one of the Bibles on the, in the back, and if you don't have one or you ever forget yours, please, please make use of that. It'll be page 262, I believe, is the passage beyond that page number. For those who weren't here last week, we began kind of a look at a, a mini biography of the life of Hezekiah. We're not going to look at every single detail, but we're going to look at some of the big, big things in his life. Really with the desire that we know what it looks like when we turn back to God. That's the theme of the series, to turn back to God. I think Hezekiah's life was uh, a walking, breathing example of that. Second uh, Chronicles 30, I've actually asked uh, Seth Asher to come and read. He's going to read a portion of chapter 30, beginning in verse 21. He's going to continue to read until verse 8 of the next chapter. We're really looking at a couple chapters. So Second Chronicles 30 and verse 21 is where he'll begin. And the people of Israel, who were present at Jerusalem, kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out of the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord, and to give thanks and praise. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, as is written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep 
and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. In the third month, they began to pile up the heaps and finished them in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Thank you, Seth. So my guess is uh, Chronicles, if there's books in the Bible we're really familiar with, Chronicles is one of those that generally we're less familiar with. It's the story of uh, lots of different kings. So if this is kind of new information or even kind of a new style of, of Bible writing to you, Chronicles is the story of several kings, some who like really followed God and some who most certainly did not. Their hearts were far away from God. And, and it seems it, it starts, First Chronicles starts with the, David being the king. And it seems like there is a there's just echoes in the rest of First and Second Chronicles of like always wanting to get back to the time of David. And so there are all these descendants of David. And the, the question kind of becomes, which son of David will take us back to the glory years? When will we have a son of David that will become king and take us back to all that we enjoyed when David was king and even when Solomon was king? So that, that's the, the kind of the message of Second Chronicles. And people wandered far away from God and sometimes they'd be called back to God and when Hezekiah comes to the throne, we looked at this last week, there is a, a great movement back to God. Hezekiah emerges as this king. The, the chapters that we looked at this morning, okay, so he, here's where we're going this morning. I really think looking at both chapters helps us because chapter 30, 2 Chronicles 30, tells of this deep encounter that God's people have with him. But then 31 follows that up with like, what will it take to have an ongoing walk with the Lord? So while one is kind of this moment in time, a deep encounter with God, chapter 31 kind of lays in place, what will it take for God's people, not just to follow him for a day or a week or two weeks, but what will it take for God's people to be following him in a sustained way over their lives? And I think when we put the chapters together, we find out both those are, are, are extremely important. The deep encounter that that God's people had in Second Chronicles 30, even what Seth just read, is really about the, the Passover, which was one day and a feast which lasted a week and then God extended another week. The, the feast of the Passover. Hezekiah gives a call to all of Judah in the beginning part of Second Chronicles 30 saying, let's all get together and celebrate the, the Passover. And he, he has both Israel and Judah come back to Jerusalem and, and people come together for this feast. So, so what is it about Passover? Why that particular feast? I don't know if you know some or a lot or, or maybe even nothing about Passover. Passover for the Israelites kind of was their 4th of July, Christmas, Easter, Memorial Day, all kind of wrapped up into one. I mean, it was a, it was a, a political holiday, a national holiday, but it also had like spiritual dimensions to it. If you remember back into Exodus, the, the time of Passover Remember, God was going to sweep over the land of Egypt in judgment. And he gave clear instruction that if you wanted to, if you wanted to be passed over, you would you'd take an animal and you would sacrifice that animal and you'd put, you'd put blood over the door and blood on the sides of the door. And when God saw the blood, he would know there's, there's an act of faith in these people. And he would pass over and would not judge them. Passover is God's grace in judgment, but... There really had to be an act of faith. I mean, people in Israel could do it if they wanted. If, if, they didn't, if they didn't want to do it, they certainly could make that choice. It was an act of faith. I will believe what God has said, and I'll do that. And then immediately following that Passover, that 
one night in Israel's history, there's this great exodus from Egypt as they're delivered. So Hezekiah wants them to remind themselves of that, to celebrate that again. And so he gives an invitation. We can actually read what he wrote as an invitation to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover, to have this encounter with God. So if you have your Bible, 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 6 is the the invitation. It says, Couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded. And this is the invitation. O people of Israel, return to the Lord. This sounds different than just uh, an invitation to celebrate a national holiday, doesn't it? Return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Don't be stiff-necked as, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he's consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. And if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. That doesn't sound like an invitation for a 4th of July barbecue. I mean, Hezekiah's almost preaching at him, isn't he? As he gives this invitation, come back to the Lord. Come back to him. And as he says, come back to the Lord, he, he describes the Lord in some ways. And, and I think it's important, if we're going to have a deep encounter of God, if you're going to have God, the God who made everything, the God who loves you, the God who knows you, if you're going to have an encounter with him, it will start with you seeing God for who he really is. Seeing God for who he really is. Even in this passage, it's interesting to me that Hezekiah calls on them to remember that the Lord the God of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Israel or Jacob, is the one who's summoning them to come back. Why mention that? I think what Hezekiah is meaning to do is say, remember, we have a God who's faithful. A God who has walked with us. A God who didn't just appear in our imagination. But our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all found him to be a trustworthy God. People, let's come back. Let's see God for this God of faithfulness. We can trust him. And then in verse 9, it's a, he, he adds another layer of a description. He said, this is the God who is merciful and gracious. If anybody had read the, the, the previous books, especially the books of Moses, they would have heard those those two things, that God is merciful and gracious. And their minds would have been taken back to Exodus 34, where God is the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the description that will be repeated over and over again in Scripture, Psalm 103. It's exactly this characteristic of God, that he is merciful and gracious, which gave Jonah so many problems because he knew God would forgive if the Ninevites repented. And he said, I don't want that to happen. Because God, I know you are a God, merciful and gracious. Saying if we're going to have an encounter with God, we're going to have to see him for who he is. And who he is, is this God who has a, has a track record, a track record of being faithful to his people, a God who is merciful and gracious. 
we need that. I, we need that in this moment. You need that. I need that in this moment. Because apart from him, we stand condemned. But when, when God enters the picture through the work of Jesus Christ's son, those who once were condemned are now made right with God as they put their faith in him. We need his approval. We need his declaration that we are okay, that we are right with him. We need his peace. We need his strength. We need his protection. We need his faithfulness. Do you see God as kind of an incidental part of your life? Or do you see him looming large, this big God? Do you see him for who he is? That's where a deep encounter always starts. Seeing God is the God who is the God who's been faithful in the past will be faithful again, and the God who is merciful and gracious. That's one of the aspects, one of the most important aspects we, we see this God. But, but another mark of this deep encounter that we can have with God is that we begin to move toward God in humble repentance. So we see him for who he is, but then, I mean, logically we might run from him if he's that big and we've sinned that deeply. But a mark of, of a deep encounter with God is that we move toward him. We move toward him in humble repentance. You know, if ever someone calls you out for something wrong, has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. It's never comfortable. I never like it. When someone calls you out for something wrong, I don't know the inclination of your heart, the inclination of my heart is to either flat deny it, I didn't do that, or to say, well, I mean, that, oh, we're making a big deal out of a little bitty thing here. I'm sure we, we all have our faults. That's really not that big of a deal. Or, or say, I, I'm overwhelmed by the fact that I've done something wrong and it's been discovered. And so I go into like, let me clean it up. Let me clean up my mess here. You're right, I messed up. And now what can I do to like pay, pay back what I've done? And, and that might be our in- inclination to move toward God, to move toward God to covering. Oh, sin, what sin? That's no big deal. Or to, to be so overwhelmed, we want to just run from it and say, you know what, I'll, I'll never, I'll, I'll never mount. Or to to say, God, what do I need to do? I'll, I'll try to work this off. I'll try to pay you back for all the bad things I've done and all the wonderful things you've done for me. But Hezekiah doesn't lead the people to do any of that. He actually leads the people to move toward God, but move toward God in a humble repentance. Repentance is turning from something and turning to someone there's a verse that describes this perfectly, and it's actually a verse you're probably familiar with. It's in Second Chronicles 7.14. And the verse sometimes is used in, in context that it really doesn't belong in, but, but this is a particular context that it absolutely belongs in because God has made the, a promise to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The first three words, if my people, if my people. And so you just begin to read that. So they've got to humble themselves. They've got to pray. They've got to seek God's face. They've got to turn from their wicked ways. And in Second Chronicles 30, verse 11 will say, there were those who humbled themselves and came to Passover in Jerusalem. And in verse 18 and verse 27, there will be, Hezekiah will lead the whole nation in, in praying. And in verse 19, 
He'll say, let's set our hearts to seek God. I mean, it's as if 2 Chronicles 7.14 is opening up and we're seeing this is what it looks like to, to move toward God in humble repentance. If they'll turn from their wicked ways in verse 6 and verse 9 say, they turn from that and they turn to God. And the Lord hears in verse 20 and verse 27, the Lord heals. That's the exact words that are used in verse 20. There's a movement toward God. God always gives grace to the, to the humble, even as he resists the proud. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. This means we actually submit our will to the Lord's. It does mean, like, not that we just feel bad about ourselves, but that we look at God and who he is and, and we recognize that he's made demands on our life and, and no longer are we stubborn, but humbly we come to him and we, we repent and we turn from that and say, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's submissive obedience to him. Do you want a deep encounter with the Lord? Then move toward him. And if you're here and you say, I, I, Curtis, I've, I've, never really, I've never really become a Christian. I, I've kind of grown up just around Christians, but it's never been real personal to me. And I think there's one thing that you need to know. So while I'm telling us to, to move toward God in humble repentance, what you need to know is what precedes you moving toward God in humble repentance. And that is that God has moved toward you. God loved the world in this way and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his only son that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know that God's moved toward you? God's taken the first step. This isn't a matter of you getting on a ladder and climbing and making your way to God. This is a God who's come to you. And calls on you now to trust him. Trust what his son has done on the cross in your place. He loves us. He sees us in our need. He moves toward us. And even as I think lots about the Passover and what that meant, God sparing his people from judgment because of the sacrifice, what we recognize in the New Testament is Jesus is the Passover. There's not a need for any more Passovers because Jesus is the ultimate Passover. God's judgment has fallen on him. And I never get tired of thinking about this. May my heart never get tired of thinking that while I should have been the one condemned, I'm the one that gets to go free because Jesus took punishment for me. He is the Passover. Move toward God in humble repentance today. And just know this, he has already, he's already moved toward you. Have you experienced that? We see God for who he really is. We move toward him in a humble repentance, but then we also make a deliberate choice to worship. We don't throw it in neutral on this. We realize that it's, it's in our hearts we have to make a deliberate choice to worship. So 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 12 says, the hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king had commanded them by the word of the Lord. Verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 30, they're singing with all their might. They're they're praising the Lord with gladness. And the whole assembly is is saying, let's let's keep this going. They want to be in God's presence. They desire to have him. There's there's such joy overflowing. And in the end of the chapter, 
Verse 25, it says, The whole assembly of Judah, the priests, Levites, and, and those who came out of Israel, and the sojourners of Israel, the sojourners of Judah, they rejoiced. And there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this. I say you've got to make a deliberate choice because in my own heart, I just look at the world and I see lots of things to complain about and whine about and be grumpy about and be worried about. And, and I can find my heart just overwhelmed and, and not grateful and not looking to God. But, but this is a call for us to, to deliberately, after all that God has done for us, let's live our lives, not just from like 11 until the time the service ends on a Sunday, but let's make our whole lives all 168 hours of the week. Let's live those lives as worship to the Lord. Let's call to mind what he has done and and let's tell others about that. Paul would say in Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, acts of worship, songs of praise, decisions to make him the ultimate thing. And interesting as I end 2 Chronicles 30 and I turn over to 31, the first verse tells us like this is catching and there's a desire to worship God. In, in verse 31, it says, when all that was finished, the whole Passover was finished, all Israel who was present went out to the cities of Judah and they broke in pieces pillars and cut down the ashram the, the, and broke down the high places, all the places of idolatry and false worship. They go out and it's not just Hezekiah, it's all the people saying, we're not going to have our land filled with false gods. I wonder if in our heart we, we have the desire to do that work, to say, if there are false gods in my life, if there are things that I'm finding refuge in, if there are things that I'm finding security in, if there are people that their approval means more to me than God's approval, if there are certain things I've got to have that if I don't have that, I cannot be happy. If I can't have him, if I can't have her, if I can't have that, if this doesn't work out, it's not just that I'll be sad. I I can't even imagine functioning. I don't want to live. If any of that begins to, to be really our savior, we've got work to do to clean that out and say, we're going to eliminate all competition from our hearts because we're going to worship God and him alone. Do we have that heart? It's interesting as we read this kind of kind of even by way of review. So they're seeing God for all, for, for who he is. And they are, they're moving toward him in humble repentance. And they're making a deliberate choice that they will worship him. So all of that matters and all of that leads to a deep encounter with the Lord. But my question today is, is one thing to have that for one day, for a week, but how do you sustain it? How do you sustain it? So I think we've all probably had a camp or a conference or a particular worship service where we felt moved or we went to a concert and like God got a hold of us and our hearts were moved and everything that I just described, that was us. We, we saw God and we, our hearts were moved toward repentance. But, but then like what happens next? What happens a week later? What happens a month later? What happens, what happens a year later? What happens decades later? I think about this and this is really important to me because I came to, came to Christ when I when I barely knew how to talk. So what is going to be not just a momentary, like fire up my heart toward God, but what can sustain the long haul? So that when I meet Jesus, if that's, if that's days or if that's decades, what's going to fuel me being faithful so at the end I can say, when I come to die, you still can give me Jesus. 
What's going to fuel that day after day after day if I'm going to be a Christian for many, many years? I actually, the easy answer is it's only going to be by God's grace, but like, how do we flesh out, okay, if it's God's grace, but how are we going to receive that kind of grace? For Hezekiah, this chapter takes an interesting turn. So it's kind of all about, chapter 30 is all about revival, but when you come to chapter 31, there's some differences. And it's actually one of those passages in the Bible that is like all about procedure and names and organizational detail. I don't know if you've ever like tried to read the Bible through, but inevitably you come to a bunch of, a, a list of names and families. And then you come to like geographical description, this boundary, this piece of land, that, that piece of land. My tendency, honest confession, my tendency is to do what I do to commercials when I, I've DVR'd something. So I'm just glad, see, I prepared for that. I don't have to think about it. I'm just going to flip through. Okay, back to the real stuff. What I've learned over time is that if I kind of get the remote out and fast forward through some of this, I might miss what God has to teach me. So I at least want to slow down. Do I read every name? I don't read every name. Do I slow down long enough to go, why this? Why this list? God's not foolish. God's not giving us worthless things. Why include a list? Why include organizational details? Why not just keep talking about the spiritual stuff? As I, as I, as I think about it in my mind. As a matter of fact, I mean, it moves toward, so Hezekiah is going to organize priests and this priest and make sure they're ready to go. And then Hezekiah is going to, to take his own resources, his own money, which he would have a lot because he's the king and he's going to give them, he's going to purchase animals for sacrifices. You can find out exactly how many. And, and then he's going to make sure the priest, and, and you can find out their names, he's going to make sure they're lined up. And as they are dispersed from Jerusalem, you're going to find out exactly what happens. Why the detail? Why all the organization? Why is it that even after all that detail, we read this verse in 2 Chronicles 31, 20. In, in doing all this, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and faithful before the Lord his God. That comes after he's organized a bunch of stuff. Why? I think Hezekiah knew something that I hope you know. Living for God is not about, not just about these one big moments. But sometimes we have to plan intentionally and systematically. We have to plan what, what rhythms are going to be in place, what habits, what patterns, what disciplines are going to be in my life to sustain this work of God. Hezekiah knew that we live in routines and we live in habits and we wake up every day and you do something when you first wake up and you do something before you go to bed. And you do something in the middle of the day. Hezekiah, I mean, it's said that he gets the offerings ready, but, but it, it tells us very specifically in verse 3, he gets them ready so that every morning and evening they can offer sacrifice. So daily, there would be this daily rhythm. And that every Sabbath they would have something to offer. You know what that's saying? Weekly, there would be this rhythm. And then every time there was a new moon, there would be a place for burnt offerings or peace offerings. What, it, what is the new moon? It's monthly. And then whenever there was a feast and there are these annual rhythms before the Lord, so, so daily, weekly, monthly, annually, there are these movements, these, these things put in place so that God's people won't forget, won't just have good initiative, won't have lots of good intentions, but let those die. I wonder, do you have that same roadmap to sustain your walk with God? Do you have a roadmap? Like, do you have those disciplines, those patterns, 
those habits. For me, if I didn't take in the Bible on a regular basis, whether by, by listening to an audio Bible or by reading it, spiritually, there's no way I'm going to survive. If I don't have some sort of rhythm... For me, this summer has been reading through Matthew 5 to 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Reading it carefully, slowly, in addition to what, I, what I'm teaching on and just reading through it and saying, Lord, what, what do I need to do? How do I need to change? What do I need to see about you? What do, what do I need to, to share with others with what you've shared with me? And, and it's just been daily rhythms of that that sustain my heart. What do you need to do? I mean, what habit needs to change? What, what schedule? I mean, we all make time. Listen, we all make time for what we want to make time for. You may not have a lot of discretionary time, but you have some. What's going to move your heart to sustain your walk with God? What needs to change? For me, if I'm not talking to God on a regular basis, if I'm not giving attention to prayer, and listen, sometimes, I, I mean, the life of a pastor isn't like you just do it more and more and more and more. more. I, I, it's up and down. And there are times where I'm really, really good at praying. And then there's times where I'm really, really not good at, at, at calling out to the Lord as much as I should. This summer, what that's looked like is every morning I've reminded myself of the Lord's Prayer. It's not a superstition for me. It's not a, a rabbit's foot or something like that. But it's reminding me early in the morning, Lord, your will be done. I want your name to be hallowed. I want your kingdom to come, not Curtis's. Lord, help me to forgive. Lord, provide today what I need for today. Lord, spare me, de- deliver me from the evil one and, and lead me not into temptation because I know, I know I'm going to be tempted today. And I know I can make some really stupid decisions and some foolish rationalizations because I am tempted. So Lord, help. And I call out to the Lord in my morning prayer saying, Lord, help me here. And it's not, it's not 45 minutes. It's probably more like a couple minutes. But it's tuning my heart every single morning to go, okay, Lord, I need to focus on you. And then lately, for the past month or so, before I go to bed each night, I try to remind myself, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I need to remind myself of that because all day long, I've strayed. I've needed forgiveness. I've not been kind I've made, I've made decisions that don't honor the Lord and I need to be reminded, my soul needs to be reminded, I can rest in peace because I am in Christ Jesus. What's your rhythm? What's your rhythm for talking to God? What, what do you do daily? What do you do weekly? Do you have any patterns? What's your roadmap here? This is what I'm really confident. If you say, God, I really want, I really want to have a roadmap. I don't now. So show me a, a way. I think God will do it. I think he'd love to answer that prayer. One of the things I need if I'm going to sustain my walk with God is being with God's people. Well, of course I do. This is my job, right? So I'm with God's people all the time. But let's say a month from now, this is not my job. I still hope I would walk to these steps and say, what I need is God's people. I need people that know me well enough to go, What's going on in your heart right now? Can, can, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. They, they know what, what breaks my heart, what strengthens my heart. I, I, I don't need to live like isolated in pretend land, like everything's going well. I need someone who knows me and I, I need a community. I need daily rhythms of talking to people who are going to pour God's grace into me. I need weekly rhythms of coming into this room, this place, 
And I need to be reminded with all of you, I need to stand, I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. I need to hear that. I need to hear my voice vocalize those sorts of things because otherwise my heart is prone to wander. I need to be reminded that I've been made alive. I need, I need to call out to the Lord, give me Jesus. And I don't just need to do that in my quiet time. I need to do it with you. I need to lift my voice with you. What rhythms of community do you have? of getting together with God's people. Uh, for me, I, I listen to sermons and talks and podcasts uh, on a pretty regular basis. I read books uh, often that are just trying to point my heart because I, I, I know I can, I can go my own way. For me, I, even this morning, so I was driving here, and I turned some music on, and it just pointed my heart right back to God. And I'm thinking back, even as we were singing a moment ago, I'm just thinking back to the years where I can remember a camp where I said, Lord, what all I am is yours. Maybe in those exact words. And that was probably in 1989. I kind of just made a firm declaration. This is my heart. It's yours. What sustains that to, to 2016? Only the grace of God. But it's God's grace working through reading, reading scripture and talking to him and being a part of a community and and. and and reading what, what godly people have said and singing. And, and I, I need that. I need that daily. I need that weekly. I need that monthly. I need that. So what's your roadmap? What steps do you need to take? That's what I'm so hungry for. What I've read Second Chronicles 29 and 30 and 31. And there's this movement, this outpouring of God on his people. Man, it's made me say, God... Could you do that here? Could you do that at Ogletown? Could you do that at churches in Newark that are preaching the gospel? Could you pour out your spirit that there would be such a movement where, where we saw people, not just occasionally, but regularly coming to faith in Christ? Lord, could you pour out your grace that we'd have such a deep encounter that we were so filled with mercy and filled with compassion that we move toward those in need rather than just taking care of ourselves. God, would you just fill this church, fill churches in our area, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and then the Spirit would be in action and there would be spiritual gifts on display. Would you fill an older generation with, with a heart for another generation and that their last years, maybe their last decade would be lived praying and serving and giving so that your work and your movement would, would long outlive them. Lord, would you unleash a, a spirit of generosity to fund things that wouldn't happen if you didn't move in that way? Would you give us people just kind of popping up all over that for some reason at this season, their hearts are stirred and they love the Lord and their lives are going to be shaped accordingly. Lord, let us see a movement that we can reach families, those who have special needs and, and those who never thought the church could quite work for them, but, but, they're, but, but they're surprised because they're, they're met with people who, who love and go the extra mile and, and who bear burdens and who care. They're, they're, Lord, let us reach those singles who feel so isolated and let them realize there is a family and it's the family of God and there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And that student that is making so many poor decisions, wandering far from God, a movement that brings back many of those. A person who's already got their suitcases packed and they're coming to Delaware 
maybe a job transfer, maybe they're coming to a university here, they're coming to a college here. What they don't know is God has a divine appointment with you. And you had such a deep encounter, it will spill over. Where does it need to start? I, I don't know how the movement starts, except for in the lives of several individuals. Yet, what, is it, what does it mean to you to have a deep encounter with God? What is your next best step? What does it mean to sustain ongoing relationship with God? What's your next step? That you, you don't just need to have good intentions. You need to take a moment and think through a plan for this afternoon, for tomorrow. Can I ask you to let's just have, have some moments to think about that? Just take a moment. Maybe you bow your head. Maybe you write notes to, to, to remind yourself of what God's laying on your heart even as we speak. But I, I'd like this to take a, a minute or so of just, just silence. Let us humble our hearts before the Lord and let him speak to us of what we might need to do to have a deep encounter and sustain an encounter with the Lord.